please turn with me in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8. And we've seen already in Mark 8 a series of events that highlight Jesus' work to bring his own disciples to a level of understanding about who he is and what his mission is. But what a task as we look at how this plays out. It shouldn't be a task or a series of events that we are totally unfamiliar with. Much of this looks very much like our own walks with the Lord as he brings us along. But for these men, his disciples especially, the misunderstanding of what the Son of Man has come to do was so deeply ingrained in their thinking that Jesus had to repeatedly demonstrate his power, his authority, and his compassion through all sorts of first-hand circumstances, experiences, and explanatory teaching. And later here in Mark 8 and then in chapters 9 and 10, Jesus clearly lays out for the first time, really, in concise statements that he will have to suffer and die and rise from the dead. And he does so once in each of these chapters, starting at the end of Mark 8. Why? Because in chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, the beginning of the last week of his life. So it is getting close And his disciples need to see him work, and they need to hear him teach, so that when he does rise from the dead after the cross, they'll then really begin to understand what he had accomplished and why he came. Now, last week we saw Jesus for the second time feed thousands of people in a very desolate place. The disciples also saw this. In fact, they handed out the food. The magnitude of this miraculous feeding, of Jesus creating the bread and fish before his disciples' eyes and before 4,000 Gentiles' eyes, the magnitude cannot be overestimated. All they had to start with was seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. And yet everyone... Everyone saw Jesus turn that meager amount of food into a feast for 4,000 plus people. And everyone there ate what Jesus created and even left seven huge baskets full of leftovers. There were at least three huge lessons for his disciples to remember and to learn about him here all of them which they didn't really get, but they would later. The first one was that Jesus wants them to understand that he is the bread of life. He is our sufficiency, our sustenance. And he also wants them to understand that he's not just bread for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And thirdly, he wants them to understand that what he supplies always 
meets and exceeds the real demand. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark 8, verse 11 through 21 from the ESV. It's my mistake. I told Marty we could get through verse 26. Didn't make it. Mark 8, verse 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now when they had forgotten, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. So Jesus and his disciples, after the feeding of the 4,000, immediately got into the boat and went to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of crazy how many times they go back and forth, or this way or that way, but they do. So they're on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, back into Jewish territory, probably a little bit south of Capernaum. And it didn't take long for the Pharisees to show up. Now, don't forget that the Pharisees had already seen Jesus do a host of miracles. And back in chapter 3, they had accused Jesus of using the authority and power of Satan. You know, one of the biggest lessons about all of this is you shouldn't pay much attention to anybody who says that all they need to see is a miracle. We see over and over again that that's not what brings people to true belief necessarily because thousands and thousands of people, including the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Herodians, saw Jesus do these miracles, their hearts weren't touched. But now these guys, these Pharisees again, want to see a sign from heaven. Why? 
the text says, to test him. In other words, they wanted Jesus to do something spectacular that obviously was from heaven. They were baiting him, putting him on the spot to do something. Like Moses dividing the Red Sea or supplying manna from heaven. Instead of making it appear as he broke the loaves like he had just done with these thousands of people, they wanted to see something even more. Or like Joshua, this would be great. Be like Joshua, causing the sun and the moon to stand still. Or like Samuel, routing the Philistines in complete confusion back in 1 Samuel. Or how about like Elijah in a duel of prophets? Remember that? Elijah against the prophets of Baal, bringing down the Lord's fire from heaven to consume a water-soaked burnt offering, which in turn led to the confidence of the other people to slaughter the prophets of Baal. They wanted something spectacular. And if Jesus had done something similar or spectacular... For them to see right there, what would they have done? They would have ascribed it to him being in cahoots with the devil, like they did before. Their purpose was to tempt Jesus to get him to try to produce such a sign, hoping that he'd finally fail so that he'd be publicly discredited. We see Jesus is very interesting and humbling response for us in verses 12 and 13, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. Now, first... What is this sighing deeply? Well, it's a lot more than we think it is. This is the only place in the New Testament that this one word is used that we have sigh deeply. He is deeply grieved and disappointed as he faced the unbelief of those who, because of their spiritual privileges, ought to have recognized and rejoiced in his coming Their hearts were morally perverse. There was blindness in their eyes. They could not see the truth. Jesus had filled the land with signs of the fact that he was indeed the one who had been sent by the Father as predicted by the prophets. The handicapped were restored The sick healed, the demon-possessed freed, lepers cleansed, storms and violent seas calmed, the hungry fed, and even the dead raised. Didn't make a difference. Asking for a still greater sign was clearly an insult. And it implied that the miracles he already performed were insufficient as credentials of who he really was. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus sighed deeply. But that's followed with why does this generation seek a sign? The English 
makes it sort of serious, but what the, this is almost an, a type of oath in the native language. In other words, another sign, and then you just stay quiet. What does the stay quiet mean? No way. You are not getting one. In other words, you see some anger here. Righteous anger. Jesus had filled the land with these signs. It's an insult to ask for something like this. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, the phrase this generation is used to mean the entire group of people who make up Israel. This is talking about the whole nation, really. All the Israelites who are blind and not following what's going on. And the next sentence begins with this solemn introduction. Truly, I say to you. So it means those hearing Jesus should pay very close attention and consider his words carefully. And then comes that very strong, no sign will be given to this generation. And this is said with what we could say is really intense emotion. Meaning no such sign as you are demanding will be given at all. Now in Matthew's parallel account, in Matthew 16 we read, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. Which is what? Jesus' resurrection. Same thing. So they would not get the sign they wanted, but they would get the resurrection. Hear that? They would not get the sign they wanted, but they would get the resurrection. And then notice what happens. Very abruptly, he just left. Jesus left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. What a terrible thing to have Christ turn his back on you and sail away. And that's exactly what he did. But that is ultimately what he does to those who continually refuse his revelation. There comes a time when he gives no more signs. There comes a time when there's no more help and understanding. Well, what about those people that do follow him, especially his disciples? How would you describe where they were? You know, when you grow up in Houston, you can, you can say they're still in a fog. You can't say that here. It'd be more like you're still in a sandstorm or something similar. But you get the point. They still don't get it. They're dull. And they're not really understanding. And as they leave the western shore of the Sea of Galilee in their boat to cross to the northeast side of the lake, which is about seven or eight miles, 
going sort of north, northeast, these guys realized they had forgotten to bring bread. They only had one loaf. Now there's a crisis. It would be a crisis for many or most of us. Can you hear the conversation in the boat, in your car, on the train? At about the same time, Jesus issues a caution to them. And the only link between the two lines of thought here being the leaven that's in bread, which is what they were talking about, bread. The disciples were only concerned about having to share one loaf, not amongst two brothers, three brothers, four children, five children, but among twelve hungry men. But Jesus was concerned about the danger of the evil thoughts and intentions of the Pharisees to them, these men. These disciples in the boat with Jesus had been right there with him as the Pharisees assaulted his credibility by their unwillingness to acknowledge that his authority and power to perform hundreds of these miracles could only come from the God that these men profess to serve. His disciples saw those men do that. They're not talking about that in the boat. I'm hungry. Where are we going to get our next meal? Which is in itself a ridiculous question. What had Jesus just done? Irony of ironies. Jesus knows, of course, that this conflict with the Pharisees is anything but a difference of opinion or a cultural misunderstanding or an ivory tower religious dispute. It's not something to just put off. Jesus knows the evil in these men's hearts and that they want to destroy him, to kill him, and that the power behind their quest to do that and keep their religious and social prestige was Satan himself. But the disciples were grossly naive and still unaware of the seductive and powerful worldliness that was embedded in the teaching or the leaven of the Pharisees. And here in our text, this is Herod. Jesus is saying, keep looking out for, always be on your guard against what these guys are teaching, what it means, how it affects your life, how many other people have bought it. Have you bought it? But they're hungry. So what is leaven? Leaven is a substance that's added to dough to cause it to rise. And it's symbolic or typical of evil in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
In the New Testament, as in our passage and in Matthew's parallel, the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod is listed. But Matthew substitutes the leaven of the Sadducees instead of saying Herod. The Pharisees' teaching is mainly in mind here, which is what we've seen and said many times already. It's centered on what? What's so dangerous about it? It's centered on the emphasis on external obedience without the heart, the heart's love of God being a priority. It's a trap that all of us have to deal with. A trust in man's add-ons, add-on traditions instead of genuine worship is a mark of Phariseeism. One theologian named Riken has called us all Pharisees, recovering Pharisees, because we all are embedded with this idea. If we just externally obey, it doesn't make any difference really where our heart is. We'll get points for that. We'll get credit for that. No, we won't. This is traditionalism. Now, why Herod? Listing of Herod there actually is connected to what Matthew said about the Sadducees because Herod and his followers, the Herodians and the Sadducees, were linked. The Jewish high priests usually came from the Sadducees, the main rival religious party to the Pharisees. And actually, the Sadducees' very existence and their continuity depended very much upon the favor and influence of King Herod and his followers, the Herodians. Remember Herod and John the Baptist. So the leaven of Herod refers to his worldly compromise. He was part Jewish. And his hunger for power, which describes him and the Sadducees. In other words, it's really all about secularism here. Their teaching, what they stand for. And so the, the Sadducees, who usually held the most powerful religious positions, rejected both the resurrection of the body... And the immortality of the soul, which left their main concerns with the here and now. They were the liberal, if you could call it that, extension of the religious people. Not really miracles, immortality of the soul, no. So you're wondering how they could even fit in at all. Well, it was mainly by the political backing that they got from King Herod. This is what they taught, though. This is how they led. This is what influenced them. So the leaven of the Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees, refers to their skepticism about the supernatural. So we've got them as skeptics. Um, Herod mainly being secularism would be his problem, and traditionalism being the Pharisees. Now that's Three pretty good things, big things to be warning your own men about. True? It's not much different than the rest of the teaching we see in the New Testament. In fact, it's exactly the same. 
And it's exactly the same for us. The names have changed, methods have changed, traditionalism, secularism, skepticism. What is that? It's worldliness. And as we consider each of these groups individually, what becomes apparent then is that even though there are several distinctions between each one, the ever-present characteristic, because all these things overlap, is the same worldliness that pulls us into all kinds of distraction and compromise and false hope and misguided thinking. It's dangerous. We live in it. We breathe it. And unless we recognize the danger, we're going to be very susceptible. Pride makes us think it won't affect us. Pride also leads that attitude to downfall and pain and misery as we learn the lesson over and over and over again. But now, Jesus is going to get their attention. We would say he's going to get through their thick skulls. I read an illustration this past week that may help explain what Jesus does here next in a way that I don't think we'll be able to forget. Many of us have experienced this firsthand in various forms. Let me read this to you, see if this helps. Most people, like the disciples, need some extra help sometimes. Like the man who went into a bank and said he wanted some cash. The teller asked him to make out a check, but the man wouldn't do it. So the teller said, if you won't sign a check, I can't give you any money. So the man went across the street to another bank where the same conversation took place. But after the exchange, the teller reached across the counter, took hold of him by by his ears, and banged his head three times on the counter. After which, the man took out a pen and calmly signed a check. The man then returned to the first bank, and he says, They gave me money across the street. The teller said, How did that happen? The man said, They explained it to me. Jesus now gets the disciples' attention much the same way by banging their dense heads against a barrage of questions. Verse 17 through 21. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Bang! Do you not understand or perceive? Bang! Are your hearts hardened? Bang! Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Bang! And do you not remember? Bang! When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not understand? Bang! 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 What was Jesus telling his men with those eight questions? That their lack of understanding was due to a form form of hardness of heart. Not towards Christ directly. They were following him. 
This is a sneaky, sneaky problem that disarms all of us when we fail to chew on and swallow and digest and act upon, act upon the teaching of God's word. Even when regularly exposed to the truth of God's word, we can still find ourselves progressively becoming more and more insensitive and apathetic to it. And apathetic to Jesus. Jesus' disciples were with him 24-7 for three years. And here they were, basically clueless. After all they had seen firsthand and experienced firsthand and heard firsthand. And they had even cast out demons and healed people themselves in his name. When they were sent out with, in pairs without Jesus being present. And yet they still cared more about being a little hungry than using the time crossing the lake in the boat together to marvel and talk about what had just happened. What all they just seen and heard. Discussing it together with their creator and savior together in the boat. And that's just like us. We do exactly the same thing. We don't hold him high. We skip over stuff we don't want to read in the Bible. And what we do like, we think about it and then forget it. These guys were not appropriating what they were seeing and hearing. It's a common human problem. And we are blessed to have the Gospels lay out by four different authors. The life of Christ and what each of them emphasize. Why do they do that? Because when he rose from the dead and they understood what was going on, they had to write the story. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do just what the Holy Spirit wanted to do, right? But from their perspectives, and it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story that shows us just what our need is and just how great Jesus is. He put up with them. That's not even true. He loved them so much, he led them to the point of their understanding like he does with us when we are clueless. And one thing we see consistently throughout all of Scripture is a constant admonition to remember who God is and what he's done. And you know, really, that's the most basic thing. Do we take advantage of that? 
We can revel in telling stories from the only thing that most of us remember who are over a certain age, and that was thing decades ago. Can't remember yesterday, but we can remember all the other stuff. And we tell those stories. And we remember who God used in our lives. See, that's getting more there. All the mundane moments that we blew, but the ones that we finally started to get it, and how patient God was, and He still is, that's what draws us closer to Him. That's what gives us the hunger to feed on His Word, to remember who He is and what He has done. It's amazing how truly great hymns rehearse in their lyrics these exact things who God is, and what he has done. So don't get tired singing him. The truth Jesus is getting his disciples to remember as they cross the Sea of Galilee together in that boat still centers mainly around what they saw happen with those 4,000 Gentiles. The first Seven questions are rebuke in that list of eight to get them to see how they'd slipped into this dangerous kind of dullness and insensitivity because they weren't willing to be touched in their hearts by Jesus' teaching and by his powerful demonstration of love and compassion for thousands and thousands of people who were not Jews. Do you have those kind of conversations? We heard some this morning at Sunday school. How great is your God? What has he done? So his last question, which is really a bookend to his first question, is more of a searching appeal to his disciples, which is why it's a good one to end with this morning. Do you not yet understand? That's what's different about it. In other words, do you still not understand that I am the bread of life for the whole world? Is Jesus our bread of life? Do we understand what this means for the way we live? Do we understand what this means for the whole world? Is he enough for you today, tonight, tomorrow, this next week, months? years. Let's pray. Oh God, we see ourselves in that boat. We see the attitudes, the lack of understanding, our trumped up boredom. 
our concentration on things that we should be seeing how to make the most of of knowing you, of having you live in our hearts in the person of your spirit, of having your word available to us. And Lord, we humbly confess we are constantly going that direction and you bring us back. You patiently bring us back in all sorts of different ways. Especially on this day that you give us every week. Thank you for your patience. Thank you that you complete what you start. Thank you that God intervened and got into the mess of our world in order to save us. We need saving. Thank you that that was accomplished in Christ. Thank you that we can look to you. We can actually talk to you like right now. We can talk to you together as one people. And we thank you and praise you. Oh, Lord, the love that you've given and demonstrated to us by sending your son, we pray that that would overflow in our own hearts towards one another and and to our neighbors, the people around us, the world. We pray that we could see ourselves clearly as belonging to you, empowered by you, having a purpose from you. We thank you for giving us your word that gives us such a clear picture through so many of every one of your people that are in so many ways show us our own hearts and show us who you are and lifts you up. Lord, thank you for a time to worship you together. We really do thank you that we could be together to lift up your name and to encourage one another in the process. We pray that you'd protect us and guide us and direct us so that we could continue to function, bearing your name in the ways that you desire and being hungry to know more about you and your word. We ask that in Christ's precious name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.